ATV Talk, the podcast presents Inspired. Sit down with your host, Leonard Duncan, as he interviews men and women whose stories are so inspirational that they need to be shared. Hopefully, their stories may inspire you and create a change. Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years, with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, TerraMaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports Tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. GPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV damper with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Louis Osuna, welcome to ATV Talk Inspired. Um, Not everybody knows uh, that we went to high school together. And you were also married, my wife and I, and that's not why I'm having you on the show. Other than the fact that I think you've had a pretty amazing career. Um, make sure that I get this right. You retired as a battalion chief and I always thought you were a captain. I'd like it if you could explain the differences in the two jobs and, um, then we can get into a, a deeper conversation about uh, what it's like to be a real life hero. Well, I uh, appreciate for you having me on your show and it was my pleasure being able to marry you and your wife. Um, so that was, that was an awesome experience for me when I get to get out and help lovely couples, um, especially on their, on their wedding day. Um, I did retire as a fire battalion chief. I'll kind of give you a little bit of parallel, the differences, um, to kind of make sense of it. If you um, look at any given city, right, there's fire stations and each fire station is kind of the firehouse, the home of the crew that's working out of that general, you know, area. And depending on how large your city is, um, you may have, you know, five fire stations, you may have 50 fire stations. You have to cover a geographical area because of response times. You want to get there within a reasonable amount of time when there's an emergency. So if you look at the firehouse um, that are in, um, you know, towns and cities, um, there's a fire captain in those firehouses. So that is the supervisor for that um, fire station. And a fire captain is kind of a hands-on person and that is supervising um, the crew at that station. Now in the fire service, because of the line of work we do, um, and it's, uh, there's a high risk involved if somebody can you know, get hurt, um, your, your span of control is kept to about five to seven people. 
you know, as far as a uh, fire captain. So usually a firehouse, if there's more than uh, that many people, they may have a couple of fire captains at the firehouse, depending on how large it is and what different type of equipment they have. So if you look at it, the fire captain, it's kind of the school teacher in the classroom and a fire battalion chief could be more like the principal of the school. So a fire battalion chief is more of a supervisor command and control for an area of, for the battalion. So if you take a city that has, you know, 20 fire stations, they may have three battalion chiefs to cover those fire stations. Um, myself in Carlsbad as a battalion chief, there was six stations in Carlsbad. So as a battalion chief, my responsibility was to provide supervision and command and control assistance on incidents to those six fire stations. So because we watch TV and see most of our information from that, which is probably false, most of it, um, this kept you going all hours of the day and night because you had to cover and be involved in um, incidents that were large, I'm assuming. Some of the smaller stuff you probably didn't get involved in. Yeah, so uh, my responsibility, so once you get into the management level um, of the fire department, um, as a battalion chief, you may have several different duties as far as administrative duties, responsibilities. And then you have obviously the um, battalion that you're covering. So you have several, several people, um, and you're, 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 you're monitoring sick vacation training, um, apparatus, and you may have some independent functions that have to do with budgets. And then of course, um, the management team working together, you know, with the rest of the department. And then what happens as far as uh, command and control and incidents, so when you take a typical 911 call, you're going to get an ambulance and you're going to get a, a fire engine to come in and assist. And it usually takes you know three to five people to be able to treat somebody and be able to get them loaded into the ambulance and get them out of the hospital. Any incident that requires more than two units working and functionally working. So it could be an auto accident where they're extricating somebody. It could be a house fire where there's more than two units going to be working. Uh, the battalion chief will come in and set up and provide the, the command and control for the incident. So it would be more, if you look at it, um, uh, a little analogy to a football team. The captain is out there as a quarterback guiding the offense hands-on, working with the team, throwing the ball, talking to them, doing all those physical things together to get that ball down the field. The battalion chief is going to be um, the coach on the sideline, worrying about who's getting hurt, who's going in, who needs to come out, who needs to come in, who needs a break, who doesn't, who's functionally, you know, working uh, on that team out there and providing that kind of level of, of supervision as kind of a parallel to that. That's a pretty good analogy right there, you know, you know yeah, so, it helps you understand the kind of kind of the work duties that that each person has. Did you like being the quarterback or the coach? I loved being the quarterback. So I spent, uh, you know, a dozen years being a fire captain. And the reason why I, I like that, uh, you know, more because it's hands on. So when you're out there and you're actually, you know, working, sweating and getting dirty and, um, you know, and and of course, I, uh, you know, really enjoyed fighting fire. 
So for me, it, it was just something inside me that um, when you, I have the ability um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things that you enjoy doing your job, but there's also the side effect of people losing property and people getting hurt, people losing lives. So when you had a fire, yes, you kind of enjoy doing that work, but the, the side effect of that is all the collateral damage that happens from an incident, you know, which psychologically, and then you kind of understand, yeah, we came, we did our job. And um, we got dirty and not saying that you like enjoyed it. You just want to do it again, but you train when you train hard and do a lot of training, when you get to go put those skills into work, actual functionally, you actually, you know, you do feel good about what you're doing. But then again, you know, um, it's a sad to see people lose property, but you're also saving property and you're also saving lives in that, in that same respect. So you're, favorite portion of the job then was the firefighting itself. Um, the firefighting itself, the camaraderie you have with the crew. So, uh, I, you know, spent 32 years in the fire service. And one of the things that you do is you're spending 24 hours with that crew. So you're spending one third of your life with a whole separate family, which is your work family. And you do develop a bond and you develop a respect and you develop, you know, um, that unity that they're going to be there for you and you're going to be there for them as a team. Um, so that aspect of, of working with the individuals and training and, and providing that for a crew was probably more satisfying than, you know, actually, you know, actually doing the job because you are training, you are working, you are doing those things with people. Um, the, the big satisfying thing in the job is being able to, to get there and mitigate an incident and get there in time to be able to stop uh, people losing excessive amount of property or saving a life or getting somebody the assistance that they need. And, and that's the, the real good aspect of working in, in the fire service. What, uh, what were some of the scariest things that you had to encounter? Well, anytime, you know, it's, there's a lot of bad things that happen in the world. I mean, that's just, you know, car accidents, fires, uh, sick, uh, people doing things to people that, you know, criminals. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, down, uh, mental aspects of the job. So anytime, you know, especially with children or, or especially you know, when you're just seeing things that really didn't need to happen. Um, if someone just would have maybe been a little bit more patient or someone would have just thought a little bit more, uh, on, on certain things, uh, people may not be hurt and dead on the incident. So seeing, seeing people uh, suffer, um, seeing family members pass away, having to deal with, um, those things over your whole career, um, you know, it, it does, uh, mentally get to you. And those are the, you know, the, the downside aspects of the job. And what you have to do is you have to tell yourself, well, we're doing a lot of good. And in this field, even though we're doing a lot of good, we have to witness and be part of a lot of bad. Um, that brings me to a question. Um, they talk a lot about PTSD for soldiers and, and police officers. Do they have treatment programs for you guys that you can go through? Are they supporting you in, in, in that fashion to make sure that you guys are mentally okay and, and healthy? Uh, 
So in the years when I got hired in the mid eighties, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of concern for that. It was kind of one of those, uh, atmospheres in some departments that if you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. You know, this is a job that you have to deal with certain things and it's come a long way. And I was a big part of that change as much as I could do as an individual for the organizations that I work for because post-traumatic stress disorder, um, is, is something that is in the fire service is, is a big part of individual lives that are working in the fire service. And it needs to be handled and it needs to be, um, a thought of as something just as much as training for an incident. So the fire service has come a long way. We've done a lot of peer support where we send individuals to learn about how to help their peers because some individuals may not be so open to some of the things that are happening and it could not even be work-related. They could be going through some issues in their home life and it's causing them some issues at work. So peer support programs, chaplain programs, having a, a mental health provider that is provided to the members of the organization that are on call that they could go see. Carlsbad was real progressive um, in that nature because when we brought in peer support, uh, chaplain service, and also a mental health provider, the organization took from their budget um, to, to manage the department and allowed um, an on-call mental health provider that a person can call and go see or talk to for at least three visits that doesn't have to come out of of the uh, city's um, employee assistance program uh, that it could just be done internal and try to mitigate some of the things that individuals may be going through because of, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress. And it, it is, it is a, it is a big problem that if departments aren't looking at it, um, they're only suffering internally because of it, if they're not doing something about it. Is it like in the police force or in some of the military when a man or woman goes in and says they have these issues, uh, do they pull them off the line um, or do they put them on a different style of work or do they monitor it based on what the healthcare provider tells everybody? Um, a lot of it's monitored on what the healthcare provider um, is going to make recommendations for what that individual needs to do. Um, most of the cases, um, because there is a certain level of, in any aspect, whether it's, um, of course, military, I, you know, they're on a whole different level, um, about what they have to experience and do. Um, the fire service does have some of that kind of entwined with it. Cause we do see a lot of destruction, death, um, and problematic stuff. Um, the healthcare provider is really going to uh, assist that individual on what, determines their outcome if they need to be, um, you know, pulled off the line or if they can stay functionally at work or if they need to do some, maybe some administration duties for a while and keep getting care. Most of it can be mitigated. Um, if it's definitely kind of looked at and internal education about it, and they have an avenue to seek assistance where they don't feel that they're going to be looked at in a different fashion. Um, I don't know exactly internally how police force works. They have a whole different line of business. You know, they carry weapons. They have a whole different um, probably uh, guidance as far as when they have, you know, those issues. In the fire service, a lot of times they, they either hug, a pat on the back, uh, let the, the internal crew know they all witnesses, they'll talk about it. And a lot of times they can move on from that incident, um, especially knowing that um, they were there to help. They were not the ones that, that caused those things. 
but definitely there could be some long-term issues because of all the things that, um, that you do witness and be part of in the fire service. Well, that's, that's good. I'm glad that you guys have elevated your game and, and, and made it better for all the firefighters that come that were with you and came after you. Um, that brings me to another question. Um, or well, a scenario, could you go through two different days for me? The day at the, at the station, uh, your normal procedure, uh, how things work in your 24 hour shift. Sure. Uh, so, uh, typically, um, you know, a shift will start, um, I can just tell you what my experience is, obviously, um, your 24 hour shift. Um, so you work one and you're off the next day. Um, and you go through that for, um, several days and then you have some days off. Uh, you come in at seven 30 in the morning. So there's a crew that's going off. So they get up uh, a little bit early, uh, you know, cause the other crew's coming in and they they got their responsibility of making sure that all the equipment that they may have used, that they check, everything's kind of clean, kind of ready to go. If there's anything that's uh, anything left uh, that needs to be tidied up, they take care of it. The oncoming crew comes in and they have uh, kind of exchange of information. So you have the firefighter position, you have firefighter paramedic position, you have the fire engineer position, the fire captain position and the firehouse. And even as the battalion chief, you know, you have a, another person come in, but kind of dealing with, you know, the scenario of the, of the firehouse. And what they do is they have a face-to-face -face about what they did the day before and the equipment that was used, uh, anything that needs to be taken care of um, for that shift. And so they kind of tell them how their day was and what they did with the calls they ran. And that oncoming crew is now responsible. They take over that information and now they take their equipment, you know, over on their responsibilities. And then there's a check. The engineer checks their units and the medics check their stuff. The fireman um, is checking the equipment that he's responsible for their breathing gear, you know, all those aspects of the tools that they may, may need for the day. That typically takes about an hour in the morning to get everything taken care of. And then typically the captain will call a meeting after all those checks are done. And the captain will kind of give the, 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 the schedule for the day. Um, and now when you live with some, you know, you got to eat. So there's lunch and dinner to, to worry about. Um, and there's typically a couple hours of training involved that is um, either pre-scheduled or internally done by the company officer for the needs of the crew. So, after you get all that stuff taken care of, the meeting taken care of, you're kind of getting close to lunchtime um, with all those things internally that need to be done for the firehouse. Uh, you have lunch, you know, an hour for lunch, and then you do a lot of training or meetings or uh, individual studies for either promotional or probationary people. And so you spend most of the afternoon doing a lot of training and possibly you know a lot of departments do a workout they have a workout program for an hour or so and everybody try to uh, you know stay in shape so that afternoon training working out all those things take take um take up the afternoon and then you have dinner and dinner uh when i was a fire captain i always tried to make sure that we all broke bread one time a shift uh people want to do individual stuff for lunch that's fine but at least for dinner someone's going to cook Someone's going to put some love on the table. So, and if, if an individual came in as a probationary person and didn't know how to cook, I would tell them, you need to call your mommy, your auntie, your grammy, but you're going to put some love on the table. It'd be one dish that you master, but you need to master something to come, come around. Cause we're going to, we work as a family. We're going to break bread as a family, um, you know, one time. And, the, uh, and after dinner, of course, there's cleanup. And usually typical downtime starts a little bit after five where individuals can uh, either do self-study, they can watch some TV, they kind of relax. 
And we typically don't go to bed till like after nine o'clock. Now, with all that being done for the day, you know, there could be department, um, you know, regulated training, whether it's paramedics, CPR, there's so many uh, different fields that are mandatory training that, you know, could come in the schedule and be part of that day. And with all that going on, anytime a 911 call comes in and the bell goes off, no matter what you're doing, you got to get out the door. Um, whether it's you just sat down to eat, you just got in the shower after your workout or you just started to run down the block. Um, those kind of, uh, you know, things are just a typical interruption of what your day and you're just kind of used to them. So if you run a couple calls a day, um, you get less interruption for what you have planned for your day as far as getting things done. If you run 10 to 15 calls a day um, and you're at that kind of a firehouse that runs those, you know, you're not going to get a lot of those um, internal things done the day because you're going to be busy running 911 calls. So how do they handle a training session, like a mandatory thing where you have to get certified and you're in a fire station that is, is always being on the go, on the go, on the go. Do they make you come in on off time and do it or schedule days for you or, or how do they do it? Typically what happens will um, the battalion chief will move units into different areas. So what they'll do is they, they understand the city and the city needs, um, whether it's one end of the city and it's busier than the other. So a lot of times in Carlsbad, six stations, we would pull two stations into mandatory training and they're out of service training because it's mandatory. Unless something major happened, we take them out of training to go on the incident. But most of the time, they're in-service training, that mandatory training, and other units are um, moved geographically to different areas to stage at different stations or different areas to handle the, the, the calls until those units are available. All right. So that's <laughs> that's a pretty organized way to do it. So when you go to train and I've only seen a few videos, I try there again, most everybody doesn't knows that listens to ATV talk knows that I try to go in with the least amount of schoolwork or, or pre education of the person or the situation so that I can be cold and ask real live questions, uh, just like the people that are listening are, are wondering how things are going. So we've seen some videos and we've seen some things like the training deals where you guys have to put out a fire or, or, or do things like that. How rigorous is some of that training and, and, and how physically demanding does it get for you? Um, it's very rigorous. It's very physically demanding. Um, the gear that a firefighter puts on, um, you know, the, it, it's, um, it's designed to protect you from heat and steam and fire, obviously. And you're encapsulated with that gear. So when you get all that gear on, you know, there, there's quite a few pounds that are, you're carrying around. Plus you're encapsulated in the um, turnouts that you're wearing to protect you from the fire. Um, so if you think about a fire, right. And you go into a small room that's burning and now you introduce a bunch of water, all that water is going to turn to steam. You put your hand over a boiling pot of water, your hand's going to burn from the steam over that boiling pot of water. So the gear is also designed to keep you from getting steam burned. So in that sense, your body is not being able to breathe. So your body can't sweat and cool off because the gear is also designed to keep that steam from burning you and also the external stuff from, from the heat. So there's a, there's a lot of things. So the, 
the ability to function within that um, encapsulated suit, which is your turnouts and breathing gear, is also dependent on how physically in shape you are. Um, but you could be in, in great physical shape and only be able to spend 10 minutes in that gear working hard. So that's why um, on an incident uh, that is working, and I mean working, it's a working fire that we know people are going to go to work and they're going to work hard. We really have to time them on how long they have been working to be able to get into, into an area to be able to rehab, take that gear off, let their bodies breathe and hydrate before they go back working. So a lot of times you'll see these incidents that are working and people will be like, why are there just so many people at this incident? Well, they're working hard in that encapsulated gear and they can only function for a short amount of time doing those things inside the environment that they're doing. So they need to be cycled out and they need to be able to um, take a breather and let a fresh crews go in and take care of that. So training wise, we train a lot with that gear to get people used to feeling that um, before they actually, you know, experience their first working fire when they're with their crew. So we try to put them through some very rigorous training. So they understand what their own capabilities are. And, and, um, how long can you stay in that suit? Well, it's going to be dependent on your environment. Um, but even in that suit, fully encapsulated um, with, with the breathing tank on your back, even in a cool environment, your body's going to stress because it's, it's working, it's stressing, your body's developing heat and it can't um, cool itself off because of the gear you're wearing. So it, a lot of it's dependent on individuals. And, and uh, there's all saying in the fire service, if we got a working fire, your breathing apparatus is kind of designed to give you 30 minutes of air. You know, there's compressed air in there. It's kind of designed to give you 30 minutes well, that 30 minutes um, is very rarely accomplished if you're working hard. So most time you're going to get about 15 minutes um, out of that breathing bottle of, of, of working. So in the training aspect of it, um, individuals have to learn to try to pace themselves on what they're doing, not overexert themselves if they don't need to, and try to manage their air capability and also their physical ability to do the job. And that comes with training. Training, uh, I was a big proponent of people making sure they work out. Um, one of the leading causes of firefighter deaths nationwide is uh, heart failure, heart attacks. Um, when, you, when you look at things and, um, you know, you have maybe let yourself go a little bit and you haven't been working out, you haven't been maybe developing some, you know, some cardiac, you know, function by, by doing some uh, workouts. And all of a sudden the bell goes off and, now you put all that gear on and you go work hard and stress yourself. That's a lot of stress on the body and firefighters have collapsed and died um, from heart failure because of that overstress that they've experienced, you know, when they put all the gear on and go to work, um, you know, their own physical demands. And so it is pretty much mandatory that you're almost like a professional athlete as well as being a firefighter. You have a, you have to keep your, your, your personal machine running oiled and tuned so that you can do the job correctly. Exactly. And I've, I've always preached to the crews and the people that I work with that you have a responsibility to yourself, to your family, to the people that you're working with side by side and to the community that you serve. And some of that is your own physical capabilities. Cause if you're unable to do the job that you're supposed to do based on 
lack of being able to physically do the job, you're now putting somebody else at risk, whether it's yourself, whether it's your partners that you're working with or the community that you're serving. So we definitely try to make uh, people in the understanding the fire service, you are in a, in a professional profession. You need to be and think about um, being a professional type athlete, at least have that mentality to where even though the days that you don't feel like maybe going for a run, you just say, Hey, I need to do this for me, my family, my partner, the community I serve and not let myself get to a point where people around me and that I know that I probably could not function like I should be. Wow. That's, I, I never looked at it that way. I never had an idea that, that, that gear was that controlling. Um, I know that you mentioned how much it weighed earlier and I missed that somehow in our conversation. Well, um, you know, it's going to be typical. I mean, you're, you're putting on 30, 45 extra pounds um, worth of gear on you. Um, wow. and, and sometimes up to 60, it kind of depends on what function you may have on that incident on how much gear you're carrying. So if you're carrying hose, if you're on the truck and you're carrying different equipment, I mean, by, by the time you're moving things and having the stuff on, you know, breathing gear on your back, stuff that's in your pocket, depending on what, uh, you know, like function that you have on the fire ground, you're, you're carrying an extra amount of weight. So a lot of times the trainings, we do train with that gear on. Right. But we can we can actually functionally manage the training incidents and, and let people realize, you know, we've only been training here for 15 minutes working hard and you've already exhausted. Um, so, you know, why are you exhausted? Are we all exhausted? And that's just that's just the work that we did because we worked really hard right now. Or is everybody functionally still working? But now you are, are kind of taken out because you can't functionally you know, work anymore. So now you may have to do a little bit of, uh, uh, things to self-improve your ability to do the job. Is that something that goes on in the, in the Academy and in the early portion of your training, or is it, or is it managed by the, the firehouse that you're in? So what, what typically happens in when you, when you come into the fire service and you, you go through an Academy, it's vigorous. Um, it's, it, it, they're going to work you you're going to know that you need to be in shape. You will not get through a fire Academy, a typical fire Academy that, 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 you know, I'm aware of, unless you have a physical ability to do the job and, and that's going to be kind of preached to you. There's a lot of organizations, right? I mean, there's thousands of thousands throughout, um, United States and different organizations just have different standards of, of may of what they may try to mandate for their employees. So there are some organizations out there, you know, once you're on the job and there's no kind of mandatory or a atmosphere in the organization that you need to stay and kind of be in shape. Um, Carlsbad had, um, you know, they did healthcare checks once a year. They drew blood from individuals and checked their, you know, um, levels of blood, cholesterol. They put us through a treadmill test, cardiac treadmill test, see how many push-ups you can do, see how long you can run on the treadmill. 
And those all um, that wellness check for the individuals, they weren't public to the organization. They were given to the individual. So the individual can look at themselves and kind of say, oh, you know what? You know, last year I was on the treadmill for 30 minutes, you know, or 15 minutes, whatever it may be. And this year I only did five. So it's a kind of a guide for the individual to realize that, hey, I may need to start doing a little bit more for myself. Uh, and, but some organizations don't have that. They don't have mandatory wellness checks. They don't have mandatory, you know, workout time set aside. And it's very easy at a busy station or without that atmosphere in the organization for people to kind of like just kind of keep slipping, slipping. And over time, all of a sudden you, you, you're like saying, oh, man, I, you know, five years ago, I was in great shape. Well, what happened the last five years? It just wasn't really preached to you. You didn't really think about it, or you may not be at a station that's really demanding and you haven't really had to work hard all the time to where you felt that on yourself. Um, but in that sense, the damage goes to that individual because if the bell goes off and they have to work real hard, you know, you hate to see things happen to people because um, the mind is going to drive you to work. Right. Right. Because if right now if something happened and you need to help somebody, you're probably going to tear through that wall behind you to go help somebody, right? Um, so in the fire service, the bell goes off, there's a working fire, your mind's going to go to work and you're going to physically go do that. But if you have not maintained some type of cardiac or some type of physical, your heart is suffering. Your heart's working hard just as your body is and you can cause damage. Wow. Never, never thought about it at that level uh, at all. So that's, that's pretty incredible. Uh, questions about, um, I know in the police force, they have levels where they bring youth in and start training and talking to them early from ride alongs to um, specific style courses they can take or, or programs they can get involved in. Um, do the, does the, Fire department have things like that for the, for the young people? They do. It depends on the agency. Uh, a lot of agencies have uh, explorer programs, reserve programs. So the explorer program that Carlsbad has, it's for the youth and they tap out at a certain age, but they can come in while they're still in high school and actually go through an internal Explorer Academy and get enough level of training where they can go spend time with the crew. They're in uniform, they're Explorer, and they can get exposed to all the aspects um, of what the fire department's functions are and even go on the incidents. Um, the only thing that we do watch out for is when you have a, you know, uh, a 16, 17 year old child, because right, they are, you know, I'm view them as, as children, you have to be careful on what incidents you actually take them into and expose them to because they still are still young enough. Um, but other than that, you know, they get to, they get to witness everything and be part of it and see if that's something that they want to be part of for the rest of their lives. And there's a lot of organizations. So typically um, what I tell an individual is wherever you live, you're going to have to call the different agencies and find out what they have for somebody, whether they can volunteer, they can be part of a reserve program or uh, explorer cadet program. Yeah. That's pretty that. awesome. And, and I'm sure you find some diamonds in the rough there. Every once in a while, you find that young man or woman that, that excels uh, at it and they didn't even realize. Exactly. I mean, it's no different than how the professional, um, you know, they send their, their people to go out and look at colleges and, and, uh, scout, right. You can see certain individuals that, you know, that they're, they're, this is, they're going to be in it. 
And we would love to have them work in the agency that you're working for. Um, it is a competitive, highly competitive job. There's a lot of pre-work requisites that are required to get hired, um, but it's well worth it. It's, you know, one foot at a time. The only, only way to eat an elephant, as I've told my kids, is one bite at a time. So when, when, you, when you look at something grand, um, especially getting into the fire service, you just... Um, if you enjoy it, it's going to be easier for you. You're going to learn it easier because you, you're enjoying it. But it does take some time to get through all the steps to put yourself into a position to be hired full time. That's crazy. I know back when we were younger and just getting out of high school, it was a much easier process. It was, it was an easier process as far as when I was able to volunteer. Um, but the process requirements were less uh, and some incidents. But when you take requirements that are, let's say, GED and maybe an EMT or just a GED, well, then now you're dealing with the masses amount of people that want to work. They never may have thought about it before. They may have read it in the newspaper because I remember sitting in lines um, back in the 80s to get hired. And there's 2000 people in line and they're going to hire three or four people. Um, so that competitive nature is there because there wasn't a lot of requirements to come in. Now, uh, in Carlsbad, I mean, you have to be a paramedic just to be able to apply. So if you're not a paramedic and that takes a couple of years to end up getting that license by the time you do your EMT, get experience and go and go and spend almost a full year in, in you know, paramedic school. Um, there are some things that you've got to do if you're going to end up in a career in, in some organizations, there's uh, other organizations that are large enough that they can hire somebody with a GED and no experience because they have internal uh, academies that um, they want to bring people in that have no prior maybe experience or knowledge and just train them exactly how their organization wants them to be trained. Of course, they'll bring in other people also with experience, but, you know, depending on how large your organization is. That's crazy. Did you get into um, any of the firefighting uh, out in the, in the countryside where uh, like wildland fire and uh, uh, the California guys go in. Did you, do you ever get into anything like that? Oh, fight and brush fire. Yeah. And, um, I, I, it just fascinated me. So I actually, you know, um, uh, had, and I say fortunate enough, even though it's devastating because um, being part of something that grand, sometimes you just feel like you're able to maybe contribute in a, in a, in a minute way of everything that's going on. So I spent, um, I think nine days in 03 on the, um, on the fires that happened in San Diego. And then again in 07 and then throughout my career, um, I was able to go to different fires, you know, all over the state of California in, in that aspect. Um, I was up in Yosemite. I think those Yosemite was, uh, I can't remember what exact year it was, but that was a very large, very large fire. So those are you know, they're devastating incidents. Um, thousands of homes burned down in, in San Diego, but we did do a lot of good work, saved a lot of property and did a lot of good things to, um, to preserve some of the things, uh, you know, for instance, in 03, uh, we would go into the houses that were already on fire and just grab their, their computers, the pictures off the wall, uh, the things that look like they're in a desk, all the things that, you know, can't be replaced. Um, and we just put them in their backyard or in their front lawn. So at least when they came back, 
their house is, is burnt down, but at least there was some things that were saved from that house that, um, you know, you look at that, that may have not been able to be replaced. That's pretty awesome. Who came up with, with, with making that call to take care of those people in such a way? Um, as you find the large incidents, uh, well, it, you know, they're bringing in lots of, of staffing, lots of units, lots of, uh, uh, engines from all over. And a lot of it is, um, you know, what the fire is doing and in what situations that they're going to put you in to try to save certain houses. And in reality, you have to triage. And when you triage, um, a neighborhood, um, you know, it's, it's tough. And you may look at a house and say, there's no way we can save that house due to the winds and the, the extreme fire condition, but we could save this house. So we will go over here and try to save this house because, uh, you know, maybe the other residents, they, they did no prep around their property. There's trees that are just touching the house and there's, you know, brush all the way around it within, you know, inches or feet. And there's, there's nothing you really can do when the fire hits that with the, with the extreme conditions. Now, another property that have done some work and there's some greenery and there's some things that we could take positions in and try to save that house. And that's what we'll do. Um, because again, we're also looking at our own safety, our own escape routes. If everything kind of goes to hell in a handbasket and we have to escape, we got to get out of there too. And if we don't have those things set up, um, and able to get an escape route, maybe to get to a safety zone, maybe do some of the things, you know, it's sadly to say, we just can't be in those areas. It, 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 depending on the conditions. Is it the battalion chief's responsibility or the captains to keep that clear path, so to speak, uh, or keep an eye on the path out, um, while that, all the action is going on? I know that in my line of work, um, I have to pay attention to everything. Um, the rider's riding, he's not focused on anything other than getting his job done on the track. Uh, so I'm having to look at all the other circumstances and keep track of everything for him uh, or her. And in, in your particular situation, are we, are you as the battalion chief, are you making sure that, that those avenues are open or is it the, or is it the, or is the captain that you've put in charge of that section? So depending on the incident and the size of the incident, and of course the geographical um, landscape of where you're at and what's happening with wind and time of day and slopes and all those things involved. Um, typically the large engines have a whole command staff that are command and control of the incident. And then they divide that incident up into areas. And those incidents have uh, people in charge of those areas. And then there's people in charge of um, even uh, break it down into smaller geographical areas. And a battalion chief may bring a strike team in and be in charge of, let's say this street in this area, right? The division chief that's in charge of that whole area may have told the uh, battalion chief, once you go into whatever it may be pepper street, and there's 10 homes on there, go in there and kind of look at it. Uh, and the fire may be coming from this area or that area and see what, um, if we can get, uh, some of those houses saved or prepped or what have you. So there's, 
so many things to look at, um, depending on what the fire is doing. If you get in there before the fire hits the area, you know, we could cut trees down. We can do some things if we got time and know that we have to be out of there if the fire hits. We know we could be there uh, looking at the residents saying, hey, we do have this big open lot behind us. If the fire hits here, we can all bail. We have an escape zone. We have a safety area. Um, if hell goes in the handbasket and we can't, you know, got to put our tools down and run, we have a safe place to go. Um, and if you don't, um, you have to maybe prep the area the best you can and get out of that area. And it it's kind of one of those things that everybody's kind of involved in looking at the situation and analyzing it because as a battalion chief, if the most junior firefighter had um, a suggestion or a comment or recommendation, it isn't like, Hey, you need to be quiet. You know, there's certain times where input is appropriate and obviously certain times it's not, but most of the time it is appropriate. If somebody has an idea to, to kind of see different things in different avenues. Uh, on the incidents, a lot of time that is coming from the captains because their individual crews are talking to the captain and then the captain's talking to the battalion chief, you know, kind of the chain of command in that respect. So it's kind of a function to everybody because you can't go into an incident like that and being the most junior fireman or the most senior guy and put your blinders on. You have to be able to, you have to keep your head on the swivel. You have to keep looking around. You have to take all your training and knowledge of pre-incidents you've been on and analyze the situation. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to save lives, save property. And you're trying to make sure you save your own life and crew that nobody gets hurt, that you're doing the job that you can. But um, sometimes you get in situations and I've been in them where you're surrounded by fire and you're hoping for the best and you're working really hard to try to save that house or you're working really hard just to try to save your own, you know, your own ass in that respect. Um, so being in the situation where when you're fighting a specific fire, uh, you, you, you're battling hard enough to make your own path uh, to safety uh, is what you're trying to say that, that you had to do that. Um, yes, I've had to do that. Um, and usually typically, um, you've already know where your safety route is and where your safety zone is going to be. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like if, you know, if you uh, go into a lion's cage and the lion's hungry and you're trapped in the cage, you got nowhere to go. You're going to be eaten. Um, but, um, if you have the keys to the door or way out, um, into somewhere where the lion can't get you, you want to know that prior, right? So a lot of times when you go into the incidents, we're analyzing everything you can to time dependent on what's happening and trying to figure out if this happens, if the fire comes, here's our plan A, here's our plan B, here's our plan C to make sure that we have enough time to get the heck out of here to get to an area that's safe if things don't go the way we hope they go. And if you have that in place prior, you're not second guessing and trying to run around because once the fire and smoke and everything hits you, um, you're going to get confused really easy. You're going to lose your geographical areas because you can't see anymore. And things are going to happen if you don't have that plan and that guidance. Um, you know, you're going to be running into the into the wrong location to get out. Have you ever had to use one of those heat blankets to cover yourself? Uh, I have not. Um, I have been in situations to where we had to bail out and get out and 
actually drive through fire all over the windshield. And, you know, it's not a good feeling in 03. Um, but I have not been in the situation where I had to use, um, the, um, fire shelter, you know, and thankfully not, um, cause they are going to protect you. But once you deploy those, um, you're, you're probably in a world of world of danger, you know, when that, when that comes to be. Let me ask you a personal question. Is it, is it, is it like when you left the fire service, did you leave a portion of yourself behind? Um, I know that in professional sports and the military, uh, you're, you're so in, intertwined to what you do that when you stop doing it, a portion of you stops. Um, did, did that happen for, to you? Um, so for, for me, what, um, I think is the most important, um, thing about the fire service, the most important value of the fire service is the people. Uh, so when you look at that respect, uh, I always had the mindset of treating everybody with respect, giving every, you know, like humans, we all had at certain points, different responsibilities, whether it's supervisor or responsibilities within your, your own ranks. Um, but you know, people are the most important part of the fire department and the way you treat people is to me, any legacy that you want to leave behind. Um, if you leave any legacy in the fire department, any individual can be replaced, you know, for the most part, if you get hurt and you have to be out, they're going to bring another person in to fill that because there's a responsibility to the citizens that they put another professional person in that seat. But for me, when I left the fire department for the years in the fire department, um, the most important thing was people. So the way you treat people and the way you respected them and the way that they looked to you um, as a person, no different than being a father, the way you raise your, you may raise your children. Um, you want them to love you your whole life and respect you and want to see you on the holidays. And I've always said to people, look, cause some people may all of a sudden become a fire captain, right? And now you're the supervisor. And some people may think that because of them being a supervisor, now they have the authority to treat people a certain way. And it's so not the case, right? You are a supervisor in a functional crew. And you're just as part of that crew as everybody else. You just have different functions. You have to treat people with respect and right. Now you may have a function as a, as a, as a supervisor to make sure they're doing their job and there's different ways to accomplish those things. But when I left the fire service, uh, my, for me, um, and I hate using the word legacy because that means that, oh, you were something more grand than, than what you are. I was just a person. If there's any legacy that I left behind in the fire service is that if I was in the grocery store and I saw some of the people that I worked with before, um, I believe they will come and say hi and shake my hand and not turn the other way and walk away and not want to say hi. And that is because how you built your relationship with people, how you respected them and how, how you treated them and how they viewed you either as a leader or as a person, you know, side by side. So that was the most important thing to me. Some people is building a training center or making sure they do certain things that that's kind of legacy that they want. To me, it was just making sure that you treat people right. You, you, um, you kind of like teach people how to teach people, right. And make sure that, Hey, you're a team. And, we are the most value commodity of this organization. 
um, is the is the people you serve and the people that you work with. That's so that was the hardest part for me, is is leaving the people. You know, I enjoy the job, but it's a young it's a young person's game. And you know, I left when I was fifty. And um, as you get a little bit older, as we are, we don't have the same physical condition that we used to have when we're in our twenties. You know, so um, it's a young person's uh, physical job. And um, once you get a little bit older, now you're you're in the mode of training the, the next generation and trying to bring up some good, some good old school values, some good some good traditional things that that make sense in the firehouse. That's awesome. Now, let me ask you something uh, that's near and dear to my heart because I have firsthand experience with it. How did you get into your second career of making people's special day even more special? So that just kind of fell into place on un, un, unknowing. So when I retired, uh, I said, I, you know, I'm retiring and I spent 32 years and, you know, working in an occupation and I don't want to go back into work. Um, I want to retire and kind of enjoy retirement. You know, I have grandchildren now and, you know, kids and I, and I really enjoy all that. So for me, I needed to find something that felt good, that felt right. Um, and what happened is that my daughter got married and she had a little bit of trouble finding an efficient to suit her needs that her and her, you know, her current husband wanted. And they wanted an outdoor, non-denominational, you know, type wedding. And they had some trouble finding some people who maybe cost, they were charging way too much money, or they brought way too much of their own values of what they expected, you know, if they were going to marry you. So there were some issues there for her. And they ended up finding, you know, the right person to do it. But after that, um, my daughter and my wife, uh, they kind of mentioned it to me. It's like, well, dad, you know, you spoke, taught, you were, you know, a leader in the organization. So you're used to kind of getting up and talking with people and kind of, kind of doing some of those things. It doesn't, you know, doesn't bother you to get up in front of a crowd, you know, maybe being a wedding official would be a good suit for you in retirement. It's not something that, you know, it's that Monday through Friday thing. And, um, you can kind of pick and choose. And I, you know, I thought about it for, for about six months before I kind of dove into it and they, you know, online, you know, you can get ordained pretty simply, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to, to, to get the credential to be able to marry somebody. And that's kind of done when people want to have a family member, marry them, you know? Um, so I kind of did that, but I kind of dove into it and talked to couples um, read some red literature, kind of figured out the different aspects of everything. Um, and then I, and I started doing it and it was a blessing, you know, you meet great people, you get to be a part, um, of a very special moment in their lives. And, um, it, it's been amazing. Uh, and that's something that it doesn't feel like it's work. It just feels like you get to be part of something that, that is pretty special. So it just feels good doing it. You know, um, and I enjoy it. A person near and dear to my heart, Mike Martinez, which we both went to school with, is the reason that we connected uh, because I didn't know that that's what you've done. And and after speaking with you and my wife did spoke to you, we knew that you were the right person for us. And um, I I know there were some people in the racing world that were that were there. Um, and there were some people in my, my, my personal life that were there as well. And, um, I believe that it wouldn't have been as special of a day if it wasn't for the way that you took care of us 
and made made everything uh, special. It was just it, it was it was an incredible day. I, I mean, I'm I'm talking about a guy getting married in his fifties. It's not my first rodeo, um, but it it was totally different for me. Um, because for the first time in my life, I found somebody that I cared more about than myself. And, um, it's still that way today. She's still the boss, which you, you, you've seen that, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, you yeah. know, she's, she's still yeah. the boss and, and I love her to death. Um, and I, every time I talk to you, I say, thank you because it, it was, uh, it was incredible. And I, yeah, can- well, that was a great time for me too. And, and, um, it was a great experience for for me, you know, especially, um, you know, we grew up in the same town. We, we've known each other all these years. Um, and so it, it, it was really special. Yeah. Well, our place didn't even look like uh, in the photos, it doesn't even look like our house. It looks like a, a resort, you know? And, <laughs> yeah, it was nice. <laughs> uh, it came out, it came out. So yeah. And I, and Louie, I want to thank you so much for coming on inspired. Um, it means the world to me the sacrifices that you've made in your life. I know that you don't feel their sacrifices, but people like me that, that, that know the pain that you go through or or the physical sacrifice that you go through. um, There's more of us out there and we appreciate it. And that's why there's inspired. And that's why I wanted you to come and tell your story. Um, Hopefully a young man or woman will hear this story and dedicate themselves some way, shape or form to serving their community and and serving humanity. Um, And um, I have dedicated myself to being a a professional race mechanic, uh, working in the performance industry of ATVs and off-roading. I love what I do. I wouldn't change it for the world, but I'm not saving lives like you are. And, and, uh, I would never compare uh, what I do to something like being a fireman or a police officer or being in the military. And I just, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming on the show and thank you for spending time with us at ATV talk. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you again. And, and, uh, we'll catch up soon. Sounds great. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Brought to you by Take-Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience... Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industries building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.